It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Hey everyone, welcome into another Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster along with Jim Callis and Jonathan Maya. We are together on the famous white couch for MLB.com at the winter meetings. This time around it is Lake Buena Vista, Florida. Um, good to see you guys. Thought we were going to be talking about all these prospects being traded at the winter meetings. That hasn't happened, but uh, how have you guys kept kept yourselves busy? Uh, just doing laps around the <laughs> lobby. I, I come and uh, clean the couch so it stays white. Uh, but uh, you know what happened? You just jinxed it. We're going to finish the podcast, and there will be 15 trades involving pod, uh, prospects right after. And we'll have to re-record. I was going to say, if that happens, nobody will ever we'll hear back. this. <laughs> That's right. Because we'll do another <laughs> one. But, uh, I mean, when a rumor even rises that there's a possible trade, do you guys try to lock in a little bit because there's been so little on that side of things? I mean, if we can help. But, like, we, I mean... I think in some ways we're more almost complimentary in a lot of ways. At the winter meetings, you know, if, if, a, if one of our writers is hearing, hey, when I get this prospect in a trade, we can throw in our two cents as to what we know about the guy. But it's, it's more kind of reacting to trades, as you mentioned, haven't happened yet. So it's um, yeah, just kind of try to stay ready. You know, if there's uh, who got traded, uh, the, the Yankees trade, but it wasn't for a minor leaguer. So when Headley and Brian Mitchell went to the Padres, our, our fearless leader, Jason Ralliff, you know, had me on alert. I had to go do something. I was like, well, text me, you know, once we know who the guy is. And had that been prospects going to the Yankees, then I would have rushed back up to my computer and moved some Yankee prospects around and added them to the list. Yeah, I mean, I'll say that when there are more concrete rumors, uh, we may spend a little time trying to, you know, go through back channels, find out who the names are. But... It's even been light in terms of, of hearing names. Yeah. You're hearing like the, oh, Manny Machado is, is, is being shopped around, or even Evan Longoria or whoever it is. I haven't heard a single, here's who might come back in, re, in return. Maybe the Marcelo Zuna trade is the only one where you've heard a couple of names. Um, but there, isn't even ha there hasn't been that much for us to chase you know, in that direction, uh, at least so far. There was a big trade, fairly significant trade before we got here, Sean Carlos Stanton going to the New York Yankees. That involved a couple of, uh, of minor leaguers. One of them, uh, Jorge Guzman, was number nine in the Yankee system, and I think it just kind of shows how good that system is that he goes to the Marlins and Jim, I think he's number three. Uh, electric arm, right? This is a guy that could high-end upside. Yeah, I mean, I panned the trade. I think a lot of people have panned the trade from the Marlins not getting enough for Gene Carl Stanton. But that said, Guzman does have a significant amount of upside. He hasn't pitched full season ball, which is why he's not on the top 100 prospects list. He has a top 100 kind of arm. Um, he's one of the hardest strong starters in the minor leagues, uh, up 97 to 103 consistently. Uh, you know, it's Michael Kopech type velocity. Um, and we need to get the minor league stat cast data and we can actually figure out who has the best fastball about among minor league starters. And the interesting thing to me about him was, you know, he was traded last year too. He was in the Brian McCann trade along with Albert Abreu, who's another very good prospect in the Yankee system. And when he came over, everybody knew he had a live arm, but he was known for being very wild, didn't throw strikes. Well, he went to New York Penn League this year and he threw a lot of strikes. So I think there's still some question with the delivery. Is he a starter or a reliever long term? 
But he was more polished and advertised this year. So there is a lot of risk when you're talking about a pitcher who hasn't gotten a full season ball yet. But from an upside standpoint, I mean, the arm, as you mentioned, is as electric as just about any starters in the minor leagues. If he does end up being a reliever, it's closer stuff, right? Right. You know, as long as the, he's got a, a second pitch that uh, is at least average, hopefully better, you know, better than average, you still have to throw enough strikes in, in the bullpen. I, I know we often uh, get caught in the, especially when we write all those blurbs up, that it's, well, if the command doesn't come, you can put him in the bullpen. We've seen plenty of guys who throw 100 who, who don't make it, you know, make it up because they can't find the strike zone consistently enough. I think based on what we saw in the New York Penn League, he'll at least be able to, to do that. And if I'm the Marlins, I give him every opportunity to, to con continue to start, just, just like the Red Sox and, and now White Sox have done with Michael Kopech. The other piece uh, in that trade was Raphael Devers' cousin, and that seems like that's his claim to fame right now. Um, what is the, he's not in the top 30 for the Marlins, um, but there's some bloodlines there, obviously. What could he become, best case scenario? Um, I think best case scenario, you're getting a, a solid defender shortstop who, who hits enough to be an everyday player. It's just he's so far away. Yeah. Um, he wasn't on our Yankees top 30, which is one of the deepest farm systems. Didn't make the Marlins top 30, which is a much thinner farm system. Um, that's not to say he's not a prospect, but he's just, you know, he's 17 or 18 years old. He's in the Gulf Coast League this year. And essentially, I mean, he needs to get a lot stronger before you really know what you have at the plate. He's not, he's a different player than Raphael Devers. He's not going to be, I, I think the thing they share in common is people like their hitting ability when they sign. Now, again, you know, Rafael was considered maybe the best hitter in his whole international crop, and, and Jose Moore has that potential. I don't think he's going to have anywhere near Rafael Devers' power, um, but he gets, makes plays at shortstop, you know, solid defender there, runs fairly well, but not like a burner where you're going to steal a lot of bases. It's just early to know. I, I will say, from the, the Marlins' perspective, I mean, they brought in Gary Denbo, who was the Yankees farm director, basically overseas scouting and player development. So Gary Denbo knows the Yankees farm system. You could argue probably as well or as better as anybody in the Yankees organization right now because he ran the farm department for so long. So, you know, they didn't get as much as I thought they should have gotten for Giancarlo Stanton because they undercut their leverage by telling everybody we have to trade him, and they, I don't think they handled it great. But that said, they had a guy with Gary Denbo who knew which guys to ask for? Like I, like, I know it didn't go down like this, but it's almost like the, the result was, it's almost as Brian Cashman said, okay, we'll take him. But you can have anybody on our top 30 list, but you can't have a guy in the top 100. And you can have another prospect, but somebody off our top 30 list. And I mean, I know that's not how it went down, right. but that's how it worked out theoretically. Yeah. But given those parameters, Gary Dembo would know which guys to pick. And, and so they didn't get one of their very best prospects. But of the guys who weren't the biggest name prospects, they got one of the best guys. And of the guys who weren't on the top 30 and maybe were, I don't know if you call those sleepers or, whatever, or the guys who were further away, Gary Dembo knew all those guys. So, I mean, I, I think whatever list of players were made available to the Marlins, you had the guy there you'd want telling you which guys to pick. Uh, last night on Tuesday night, as we record this on Wednesday, in the lobby, and we always talk about the lobby at the winter meetings. It's where everybody kind of gets together, and there's a lot of talking and that kind of thing. Late Tuesday night, you got that ripple through the lobby, as everybody kind of saw on Twitter that Shohei Otani has a sprained uh, UCL ligament in the arm. Uh, Jeff Passan had the, had the story. We haven't talked since he signed with the Angels, and obviously this throws a, a little wrinkle into that. The Angels have right away came out with the statement, and Billy Epler said, we're not concerned about this at all. We obviously knew about it. Um, but that said, it's something. Yeah, well, it definitely made you pause. Yeah. I and mean, we, you know, we installed him about as high as you could rank a guy 
You know, he was number one on the Angels list, obviously. Not a great system, although it, it, it was getting better even before this signing. Number one on our top 100. Number one on our right-handed pitchers list. And number four on our top 10 outfielders list. I mean, we've never done that before. So obviously, uh, you know, the reports we had on him were as ridiculous as, as what everyone else had been seeing. Uh, and this certainly makes you pause and, and, and wonder, well, you know, he didn't, he didn't really pitch over the summer much. Uh, but uh, it's not just that the Angels downplayed it, because I think, of course, they're going to. I, I think the, the, the bigger thing is that they, they clearly knew. Yeah. Right? They wouldn't have signed him to the contract before he had undergone the physical. It's just that the news came out after. Um, it sounds like it, it's non-surgical, at least for right now. Um, I'm always worried, because, you know, how many times is it an elbow sprain, and oh, it doesn't require surgery, and then it eventually does. So we're just going to have to wait and see. He's got a pretty good fallback if he can't pitch, right? Now, I think the Angels are one of the teams that, while they're all on board letting him do both, would have been just happy to have him pitch. Right. I mean, I think it was you know, pitch first and, and hitting, yeah, we'll let him do it and we'll see how it goes. Uh, I don't think they were one of the teams that liked him better as a hitter. Uh, so, you know, whether that would have changed the, the uh, parameters of the deal, I don't know. But it's clear that the Angels and, and anyone else who was seriously were considering uh, getting him, because remember, the Angels weren't only giving him whatever bonus he got, and most people think it was the, the remainder of their international bonus pool. They had to give the Nippon Ham Fighters $20 million to do it. So you're not going to do that without knowing exactly what's going on with the guy physically. That's a good point. It's also interesting that it wasn't the situation with Tanaka a few years ago and the other Japanese players coming over where they had to shell out $100 million, $150 million. So True. when you think about the chance of an injury and maybe a problem, the investment's less, and I think that's even more reason that I think probably any of those finalists, even with this knowledge, would have been perfectly happy to still get him inked. And I don't have this story in front of me. I looked at it last night. I think they knew. I think yes. teams yeah. were made aware of this before the decision was made and the presentations were made. So it wasn't like they were in the dark. But it, it, it is interesting because, as Jonathan was alluding to a little bit, I do think the vast majority of teams preferred him as a pitcher. And my suspicion, nobody was going to say it publicly because you wanted to sign Otani, and he wants to play both ways, is that most teams would have preferred probably to sign him as a pitcher only rather than try this experiment, which really hasn't been tried in forever, to have the guy be a high-level DH and pitcher at the same time. So. Um, it'll be interesting, like Jonathan mentioned, if he can't pitch, you still can get something out of him as a DH. You theoretically could DH even, you know, come back at some point for Tommy John surgery and DH before you pitched. So we'll just have to see how it plays out. But I, I have the same thing with you. Whenever I see that somebody's doing like a PRP injection or they're going to try to do rest and rehab when they have something going on with the elbow, it just seems like nine times out of ten, probably more than that, at some point the elbow gives out and they need surgery. Not that... We're playing uh, doctors here, but uh, th that was my thought too. Was you know, when I was reading about the PRP stuff, is you just, to me it's almost like a ticking time bomb. When is it going to go out? Because it just seems like it. Whenever you first get that inkling, it eventually does go out. Tanaka's been pitching with it for a little while yeah. successfully. The stuff's not quite what it was though when he right. first came over. Right, so. he's had to recreate it. So yeah. I mean, and, th and this is when I think the 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 two-way thing comes into play because he's not going to have the same amount of time to prepare. You know that than Tanaka does. He's not going to be on the normal five-day schedule because he's hitting. Uh, how that impacts the ability to, to maintain uh, an, an elbow issue, uh, no one really knows. We're going to have to wait and see. The winter meetings is not over. 
until the Rule 5 draft on Thursday morning. It's always the final thing, and, and we will broadcast it, of course. Uh, you can check it out streaming on MLB.com. But, Jonathan, what's it all about? Yeah, it's a, it's a relatively risk-free and inexpensive way for teams to find major league talent. I think I've called it, you know, needle in a haystack, diamond in the rough, whatever you want to call it. These are guys uh, who are available because they weren't protected on their team's 40-man roster. So while there might be talented players, they're not talented enough to get one of those coveted spots. And uh, not long ago, the rules were changed, so teams have uh, an extra year uh, to, to take a, a look at these players and decide whether they should be protected. So the players we're going to be looking at and talking about uh, in the Rule 5 draft were either high school draftees or international guys, 18 and younger, from 2013. College guys from 2014 uh, are, are eligible. Uh, so we don't get some of the same big names that we used to because of that extra year. But the last few years, there's been uh, a lot more uh, retention rate. Guys stick. If a team takes a, a player in the major league phase, they have to pay $100,000 to do it. So it's you know, relatively risk-free financially. They have to stay on the 25-man roster all year, uh, or they can get offered back to the team. They, they would go through waivers, so any team could claim them. That's why sometimes you see Rule 5 guys that end up bouncing around to three or four different teams. Um, but uh, like I said, you know, the, the last few years, there haven't been like these big, huge names, uh, but some of them have, have turned into you know, really good players or contributors to playoff teams and things like that. The number one pick in that Rule 5 draft this year uh, belongs to the Detroit Tigers. Uh, you listen to teams this week, Jim. Uh, who's, who's the guy they may go with? Well, I mean, just like we do in the Rule 4 draft, I mean, Tigers, you got to go with a hard-throwing pitcher, right, right. Jonathan? Absolutely like, right. Every time, like, we do a mock draft for the Rule 4 draft, so... And this guy's name gets mentioned a lot. Uh, Nick Birdie is a guy who, who jumps out to me with the Twins. He was a second-round pick in 2014. Blew out his elbow this year and had Tommy John surgery, which in a way, I don't know if positive is the right word to say, but it makes it easier to keep him because you can stash him on your DL. You, you, there's a certain amount of days you have to be on the active Major League roster in a given year, and if you don't hit that total, it carries over to next year. But you could take a Nick Birdie, and you don't have to keep him on your active roster necessarily. You could put him on the Major League DL and, and then continue the Rule 5 process next year if you had to. But he's a guy who can throw triple digits with his fastball when he's healthy. Nasty slider. Wasn't that far away from the big leagues. Um, had surgery during the summer, so I don't think you'd get him back till late in the year. Um, you get you know, basically September call-up time. That's free time towards the amount of days you have to keep him because you can just add him when the rosters expand. Um, so I, I think he's, and I've heard his name a bit, so I don't know if it'll be the Tigers specifically. You know, going Tigers and hard thrower, there's probably 50 guys available in the Rule 5 draft who throw 98 and they're either hurt or they can't throw strikes or they're far away from the majors or some combination of them. So I don't know if I'll get Nick Birdie to the Tigers right, but I think that's the type of profile of guy that they would like. Yeah, and, you know, they're always position players. It's usually arms. You know, it's a lot of power arms, but they're always some position players. And it seems that every year there are catchers that end up going, people looking for maybe a defensive-minded backstop. Uh, Luis Torrens ended up sticking with the, the Padres. Oscar Hernandez went uh, as the number one pick, uh, you know, not that long ago. And there, there's sort of two names that are, are popping out. Uh, one is Nick Shufo, who was the Tampa Bay Rays first-round pick in 2013. Actually had an okay year. Uh, in double A this past year, but didn't hit a ton, but the catch and throw skills and the leadership skills are tremendous. And, and the other catcher's name is Dom Nunez, who's another uh, guy on, on the Rockies' top 30. He's actually in their, in their top 10. Uh, converted guy behind the plate. Again, solid behind the plate. Did not hit at all in double A. Uh, so you're really betting on the glove and, and 
being willing to take a chance that that might help you in a backup role. The rules for the Rule 5 draft have changed a little bit in recent years, uh, so it's, it's a different caliber of player sometimes that we see, still productive, but historically when you go back through the years, there's been some superstars that have come out of the Rule 5 draft. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think Johan Santana is probably like the, the godfather of the Rule 5 draft, uh, at least in sort of the modern, modern era. Yeah. I mean, Roberto Clemente was a Rule 5 pick, and uh, I, I kind of, it, it was much different back then, but I think Johan Santana was kind of exactly the guy that uh, was discovered. Uh, and he was sort of hidden uh, in the Twins' bullpen uh, for, for that first year and then established himself as one of the better left-handers in the game. And uh, I guess the other guy who comes to mind is probably Josh Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's, it's all kinds of different stories on these guys. I mean, with Johan Santana, he was in low class A with the Astros. Twins area scout was scouting the game for the pro side, Billy Milos, and he saw him pitch a really good game. And he got the ball rolling, and the more they looked into him, they decided we like this guy. Josh Hamilton obviously had a, a very troubled past with the Rays, with drugs and all kinds of issues. And he'd just come back playing, and there were 40-man roster issues because he'd been signed, you know, obviously with the Rule 5 coming in play. Rays didn't protect him. But to be honest, I don't think it was so much, oh, we don't know what his potential is, as it might have been change of scenery might be what this guy needs. And I don't know if people remember, the Cubs actually drafted him. You get a lot of trades, just like with Santana. Right. I think the Marlins took Santana with the number one pick and traded him and to traded the Twins for like the second or third pick and some cash. The Cubs drafted Josh Hamilton, traded him to the Reds, and, and the rest is history. Yeah, and then, I mean, Joaquin Soria is another guy that sort of fit that mold. He was a guy who hadn't barely pitched full season ball, was lights out in winter ball right before the Rule 5 draft, and that's when they rolled the dice uh, on him. And, uh, you know, he turned into an all-star closer. I, I guess, like, recent history-wise, the only guy that really is starting to stand it is, is Odubel Herrera, who... Who was know, more of an infielder. Right, who was more of an infielder, <laughs> Played center field and winter ball before the Rule 5 draft, so they clearly had some comfort level that he can handle playing the outfield. He's made an all-star team. Uh, I, I kind of stacked up some of these guys uh, uh, by war, and he's not in the top five, but he's getting there. He's over 10 war in just three years, and he's turning into a, a really solid everyday center fielder. And that you don't see too much um, anymore. You know, you, you're more likely to see the Matt Bowmans of the world who end up being very valuable pieces out of a bullpen as a middle reliever. But to have a, an up-the-middle dynamic all-star caliber player from the Real 5 draft just doesn't happen all too often these days. guy that comes to mind for me is, because uh, you think about lesser teams stashing guys on their bullpens uh, so that they can get better, but for contender's sake, Joe Biagini a couple of years ago, yeah, right. drafted by the, the Blue Jays, and he was on the postseason roster Pitched and playoffs, pitching yeah. great in the postseason for that team. No, I mean, like, like Jonathan said, I think you're, you're more, even if you're a contender, you can look at this as a low-risk way to maybe get a complimentary piece, because if the worst thing that's going to happen, if he doesn't make your team, like, I guess the team could say you could just keep him and you're out $100,000 and you don't like him. But, or they take him back and you lose $50,000, which in a, a baseball budget is almost nothing. I haven't heard this year any of the buzz on the winter guys because you do see that happen a lot where guys doing something right. winter ball and, and takes a step forward. My first <laughs> winter meetings in 1989 for Baseball America, no, I guess it was 1988, it was December 88. Uh, so my first full year at BA, 1989, they, the Braves had their own pick and they actually drafted their own guy because ben, they didn't protect Ben Rivera. He went to winter ball and looked great. And so they took him with the number one overall pick in the Rule 5 draft because they were afraid they were going to lose him. And they didn't have to keep him on the active roster because they would have had to return to himself. But you're was, allowed, they were allowed to draft a the player they already... Yeah, they had the number one pick. They took their, they took their guy. 
Interesting. And yeah. then because it was their team, they didn't have to keep on the major league roster because theoretically, if you thought the way the rule worked, you would have to offer them through waivers, but they were allowed to just send them to the minors. Did they have to pay themselves the fee? I don't know how that worked. If like one guy <laughs> paid another guy, like the guy who set the rule five had to pay money to the guy who drafted him. I don't know, I don't know how that worked. <laughs> Uh, the winter meetings, it's not just about meetings and trades. There's also a lot of awards that over the course of the week get announced as well. And one of those is the Scouts of the Year Award. Jim Callis, you oftentimes always get to that dinner. Uh, who are the Scouts of the Year this time? Around? And that's always one of my favorite things here because you get to see not just the honorees, but a lot of scouts who are in attendance and people telling stories. But this year, three very deserving winners. Um, Russ Beauvais, who's a special assignment scout with the Blue Jays, is one of the winners. Grady Fuson, who's a special assignment scout with the Astros. And then Tiny Thomas, who's been area scout for the, for the Giants for almost 30 years, are three winners this year. All very deserving. You know, Russ Beauvais with the Blue Jays was a guy who got his start with the Major League Scouting Bureau back in 1982. Um, went to the Brewers, was there for a while. Not so much as an area scout, went, became a, a cross-checker pretty quickly. Uh, then he went to the Expos for a year, signed Ian Desmond. Went to the Mets as scouting director for one year and basically was only there for one year because there was a regime change. But the one year he was there, he got five big leaguers, including Mike Pelfrey, Jonathan Neese, Bobby Parnell. So the, his one-year scouting director was pretty good. Um, and now he's, he's like, went to uh, the Blue Jays. He's been with them for a while. Grady Fuson, anybody who read Moneyball or saw the movies, familiar with him, although he was gone from Oakland for the Moneyball draft. But he had a long playing career. Uh, began scouting with the A's uh, in 1982. He scouted and managed and coached kind of simultaneously. Then he became the scouting director in 1995 through 2001. I mean, he drafted Mark Mulder, Barry Zito, Eric Chavez, uh, Tim Hudson, um, and then went on to stints with the Rangers and the Padres, where he oversaw all player scouting development um, and made two very astute low-round picks oversaw that process when he was with the Rangers when they got Ian Kinsler and he's with the Potters when they got Corey Kluver. Um, so he's probably maybe the biggest name of the three that fans might have heard of. Um, Tony Thomas was a guy who played for the Giants in the minor leagues and when his career was over, transitioned right into scouting in 1988. Um, he signed 18 big leaguers during that time. Uh, Brandon Belt and Bill Miller are probably his two best guys and you know Miller, a good piece of scouting again and not a guy who was a high pick and not a guy who from a tools standpoint, that probably jumped off the charts. You know, he was a, a shortstop in college who, you know, didn't have traditional shortstop tools and wanted to have a long big league career and won a World Series ring, won a batting title. So, so three deserving honorees. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I like the most uh, about this reception and, and just being able to, to to talk about it, other than you know Jim waxing poetic about them, is that. Uh, you know, I think we have a, a, a deep appreciation for what scouts do. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we do uh, without what they do. I mean, we rely on their eyes uh, and, and their insights and their information, and they really are the, uh, the backbone and the lifeblood of, of baseball. These are guys who work tirelessly. They don't get the recognition they deserve, uh, but without them, the stars that everyone sees out you know, on major league fields that wouldn't find their path. So uh, to be able to spend a little time recognizing them uh, here in the stage of the winter meetings and smaller stage you know, here during our podcast and on MLB.com is I think the least that we can do given uh, what these guys give to the game each and every day. All right, that's going to do it for this Pipeline podcast. Rule 5 draft, 9 a.m. Eastern time, Thursday morning. Check it out on MLB.com. For Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, I'm Tim McMaster. Tune in again next time. <laughs>